Good morning. Charles Osgood is off today. I'm Lee Cowan, and this is Sunday Morning. We've seen the debut of countless miracle drugs in recent years, drugs that make a world of difference. But sometimes at a steep price that can make some miracle drugs tough to swallow. We call our cover story a bitter pill. It's reported by Aaron Moriarty. Ten-year-old Gracie Diggs has witnessed much of her life from the sidelines in a wheelchair. I didn't know any kids that had arthritis at that time. And so I'm like, am I the only one? A simple drug may be just the miracle Gracie needs, but it comes at a hefty price. And did those prices go up that much just simply because drug companies could do it? Because they could do it. Are drug companies making a killing on miracle medications just ahead this Sunday morning? Garrison Keeler will be homeward bound after he hosts his final edition of Public Radio's A Prairie Home Companion next weekend. First, though, he's got an appointment with our Jane Pauley. What's been a quiet week in Lake Wobegon, my hometown? News from Lake Wobegon. Hometown boy moves on. There will be tears. For me? No. We can prevent that simply by talking about flatulence. Nobody weeps when flatulence is the subject. That's the news from Lake Wobegon. A fond, if not a sad farewell. Later, on Sunday morning. A Highland fling heats up the moors of Scotland in the hit TV series Outlander. Michelle Miller will tell us all about that. Outlander. It's time-traveling television set in the Scottish Highlands of the 18th century. All about war and love and something else. You can ask about the sex. Okay, yeah. Yeah, is the sex really that good? <laughs> Passion and pageantry later on Sunday morning. This morning's story from Morocco is a fly-by-night tale of an art project that's taken wing. What are you doing? Duke Riley had a dream. I felt like I was like St. Francis or Grizzly Adams or something. Gather a giant flock of pigeons. I can't lie. I'm yeah. remembering Hitchcock's movie right now. <laughs> Fasten tiny lights to their feet and see what happens. <laughs> this is what happens. Fly by night. Pigeon Light Show, ahead on Sunday morning. Serena Altschul asks, is fashion really art? Comedian Tig Notaro is bearing all to Luke Burbank. Steve Hartman meets a young man coming to terms with the Orlando shootings, and much more. It works great. It's awesome, but it's expensive. Ahead, soaring drug prices. They don't just affect the old. And later... Taking flight. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. People the world over are scratching their heads over Brexit, Thursday's vote by Britain to exit the European Union. Now the feeling even has a name. Regrets it. Mark Phillips is in London. The Brexit vote here may be the first example in a major Western country of post-factual politics. The facts didn't matter. A weaker pound, a smaller economy, fewer jobs, higher prices. Scaremongering, it was called by the Leave campaign. The warnings, however widely predicted, were ignored. And now they're turning out to be true. David Cameron, who's announced his resignation, didn't have to call this vote. He did it because he was under pressure from Eurosceptic members of his own party, who have always wanted out. He did it because of this man, UK Independence Party leader Nigel Farage, whose party's candidates were threatening in the constituencies of England's Tory heartland, largely on immigration issues. Step into any cafe in those places, and this is the sort of thing you're likely to hear. We're British. We don't want all the other people, and we just want 
us. We're English like it, I mean, suddenly, by stealth, we're now being governed by an unelected European Parliament. The inconvenient fact? All of the people working in this cafe are immigrants from Eastern Europe. Nigel Farage's Breaking Point poster, unveiled late in the campaign, was widely considered a low point. It was rejected even by other Leave campaigners for its apparent racism and was quickly withdrawn. It showed what seemed to be hordes of immigrants flooding in from the east, even though those migrants were nowhere near Britain. But all those facts pale compared to this one, the number. The Leave campaign drove a bus around the country claiming EU membership was costing Britain 350 million pounds a week. It wasn't. Didn't matter. It was only a fact. Here's another one, and this one can't be denied. This vote has split the country right down the middle and particularly on age lines. The young, especially the under 25s, have voted overwhelmingly to stay in the EU. The old, especially the over 65s, voted just as strongly to leave. The old have determined what kind of country the young will live in. And one of the first reactions to this vote after shock has been resentment. The British people have spoken and the answer is, we're out. For all its drama, the vote was just the beginning of the process of leaving Europe. Untangling the web of regulations, industry standards, laws and other conventions may take years. Establishing new ones even longer. In the meantime, British politics is paralyzed. Boris Johnson, the front-runner for David Cameron's job, led the Leave campaign and is now unpopular in London, which voted to stay. I'm a bit shocked, to be honest. Um, a lot of people who voted to leave are now saying they never thought they'd actually win and would change their minds if they could vote again. I love this country and I feel honoured to have served it. Brexit has led to regret and no one has more of it than the man who called the vote in the first place. Can a miracle drug also be a bitter pill? It can when the price of a life-saving prescription drug is more than most people could possibly afford. Our cover story is from Aaron Moriarty of 48 Hours. Most people don't know that kids can get arthritis too. 10-year-old Gracie Diggs may just make you believe in miracles. Only a year ago, Gracie spent much of her time like this. Have you seen Gracie in a wheelchair? Yes. Anna Diggs is Gracie's mom. Seeing your child in a wheelchair is very difficult because, especially when you have any child, but Gracie was so outgoing, athletic, she loves sports. When Gracie was four years old, she was diagnosed with juvenile rheumatoid arthritis debilitating joint pain that can make even simple tasks excruciating. Trying to put on my clothes, raising my arms, um, moving my knees to get up. Are there some days you just don't even feel like getting out of bed at all? A lot of days. Yeah, just look at her now. The Diggs credit Gracie's miraculous mobility to Humira, one of the nation's top-selling drugs. Since she started taking it earlier this year, her painful arthritic flare-ups have all but disappeared. And that wheelchair, it's in the garage. She plays volleyball, softball, and basketball. She's and currently football. <laughs> currently <And> football. <laughs> I, I you, was going to I think you need him. to drop the football. Humera yeah. <laughs> works by targeting and helping to block a specific source of inflammation. Humera is just one of several drugs. Ask how Embril can help relieve joint pain and help stop joint damage. That have transformed the lives of millions of Americans who suffer from rheumatoid arthritis, or RA. This is a photo from a juvenile RA conference 30 years ago. Hello, world! This is a group of children with the same condition today. With similar advances made in treatments for cancer, multiple sclerosis, and hepatitis C, the pharmaceutical industry should be basking in praise. Instead, it's on the defensive, trying to explain why the cost of many of these treatments are so high. 
The issue came clearly into focus last September. Tonight, the head of a drug company who's accused of gouging patients says he should be thanked. Turing Pharmaceuticals and its CEO, Martin Shkreli, made headlines after raising the price of a drug used to treat AIDS patients 5,000 percent. That's not a typo. No one was more offended by their behavior than, than our members. Steve Ubel was named president of Pharma, a drug maker's trade group, the same week that Shkreli was called the most hated man in America. I think you referred to him as a knucklehead. Yes. Uh, you know, I think what's happening on the one hand, patients are paying more for their medicine as the insurance market has shifted. And on the other hand, they see the behavior of somebody like Martin Shkreli and they connect the dots in a way that is very misleading and unhelpful. But others say that Chakrali's actions, while extreme, reflect a disturbing trend. He did it to a greater extent than probably anyone's ever attempted. But there are other companies who are taking big price increases, less than 5,000 percent, but they're taking these price increases year over year. Dr. Stephen Miller is the chief medical officer for Express Scripts, the nation's largest pharmacy benefit manager. He negotiates with drug companies to get the best prices for health insurers. And did those prices go up that much just simply because drug companies could do it? Because they could do it. There's no, like, market reason. They didn't get more expensive to produce. This is not inflation. This is just drug companies capitalizing on the situation. Miller says when drugs lack competition, it's harder to negotiate and easier for drug companies to raise prices. How much? An analysis commissioned by Reuters earlier this year found that list prices for the best-selling drugs in the U.S. had risen anywhere from 50 to 100 percent in five years. The drug that went up most? Gracie's drug, Humira. Humira's list price rose from more than $20,000 a year in 2010 to over $45,000 in 2015. How do drug companies defend a 100% increase on a drug that's been on the market for a decade? Well, the problem with a lot of the analyses that you're referring to is that they oftentimes focus on list price. It's a bit like a sticker price uh, of a car. It doesn't reflect the price that most people pay. In Gracie's case, her family does pay only a small portion of the cost of her medications. Insurance pays 75 percent, and AbbVie, the maker of Humira, picks up much of the rest. you have any homework? But Gracie's mom, Anna, wonders for how long. It's not antibiotic. Yeah, it's not going to go away in 10 days. No, it, it, she may be on this forever. Many treatments for arthritis and cancer are expensive to develop because they're biologics produced from living organisms grown in labs. Drug makers understandably want to recoup their costs. But there's another reason for high prices in the U.S. In other countries like Canada, Germany and Great Britain, the government limits what drug makers can charge, which leaves American consumers making up much of that lost profit. So aren't we subsidizing? Yes, we are. I, I believe that the U.S. Um, is in some ways uh, supporting innovation around the world. The solution, say many, is to create more competition for these biologics with biosimilars, drugs that aren't identical but work in much the same way. One study estimated that the increased use of biosimilars could save the U.S. healthcare system $250 billion over the next 10 years. Steve Pearson runs the Institute for Clinical and Economic Review, an independent think tank. I do expect that biosimilars will have a beneficial effect. They'll be good for patients, they'll be equally effective, and hopefully the price will come down. If they can get into the market. If they can get into the market. The early signs are that it will be contested at every step along the way. A lot of the effort, though, to keep uh, the biosimilars and other competitors at bay um, doesn't add a lot of clinical value for patients. Doctors have been prescribing Humira for over 13 years. The original patent for Gracie's drug Humira expires later this year, and the FDA is set to review a biosimilar next month. But the drug maker AbbVie has filed for additional patents 
determined to keep a Humira biosimilar off the market in the U.S. until at least 2022. Any company seeking to market a biosimilar version of Humira will have to contend with this extensive patent estate, which AbbVie intends to enforce vigorously. Pharma's Steve Ubel says biosimilars are inevitable, but that drug makers need to make substantial profits before their patents run out to fund research into the next generation of breakthrough treatments. Otherwise, we might never see miracles like Gracie Diggs. These are the most innovative, most transformative medicines. There have to be incentives to produce better treatments and cures, knowing that over the course of the life cycle of the product, it's eventually going to be essentially given away. It works great, it's awesome, but it's expensive. It is expensive. But you wouldn't imagine giving it up, saying, okay, no. I'll go try a different drug. No, not as long as it's working. As long as it's working, you know, I'll go live in a tent down by the river <laughs> as long as she feels good and she can be a normal 10-year-old girl. Just ahead, non-stick-to-itiveness. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. And now a page from our Sunday morning almanac, June 26th, 1910, 106 years ago today. A date that should surely stick in our memories. For that's the birthday of Roy Plunkett, the accidental inventor of a remarkable non-stick substance. Plunkett was a DuPont chemist working with gases in the late 1930s when an experiment, unexpectedly, produced a mysterious white powder. The slippery stuff turned out to have multiple military applications and even helped in making the first atomic bomb. In 1945, DuPont trademarked its miraculous discovery, mercifully shortening its chemical name, polytetrafluoroethylene, to the more user-friendly name, Teflon. And for all its industrial and electronic uses, most of us know it best thanks to our nonstick kitchen pots and pans. Well, good thing it's Teflon. Over the years, Teflon's praises have been sung in many a TV commercial. Even burned food won't stick to Teflon, so it's always easy to clean. As for Roy Plunkett, he went on to make many more discoveries, many of them judged to be critical to our national defense. I think it ought to be used to make good for people, not harm. He died in 1994, just shy of his 84th birthday. But his name lives on in the form of DuPont's Plunkett Award. And his Teflon lives on, too, on stovetops all over the land. Coming up. There is a huge aesthetic drive behind creating fashion. The art of fashion. Is fashion also art? It's hard to argue that these dresses aren't works to admire. And there are a number of museums trying to make the case for fashionable art, all in the tradition of one trailblazing exhibit, as Serena Altschul now shows us. In the summer of 2011... Alexander McQueen line, please go all the way to the back. The hottest event in New York City wasn't a blockbuster show or a restaurant opening but an exhibit at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. It was a complete surprise to us when we started to have lines around the museum. We were so unprepared for them as well. The exhibit featured the work of late fashion designer Alexander McQueen. And visitors couldn't get enough. We don't really set out to create a blockbuster per se, and really it's people who make them. It was the people who made that share a blockbuster. And that's exactly what they did. Andrew Bolton is the director of the Met's Costume Institute. Record-breaking attendance for the Met for McQueen. Yeah, it was more than 660,000. So we were probably expecting something about 300,000. Oh, so more than double. So more than double what we were expecting, absolutely. And what did it do for Met membership? 
it was enormous. It, it introduced a new audience to, to the museum. So that's always great, and, the, and it was extraordinary. The McQueen exhibit became one of the Met's top 10 most visited exhibits of all time, alongside shows featuring the Mona Lisa and Picasso, which prompted this headline and the question, is fashion art? Is the jury out or has it been decided? I think it's still out. I think, unfortunately, and, it, and I find it extraordinary, the fact that in this day and age, people are still debating it. Regardless of those debates, the Met is still fashion forward, with a fashion exhibit this summer titled Manus Ex Machina, a look at hand and machine-made clothing. And the Met isn't alone. Museums around the world are moving fashion from catwalks into galleries. Here, it, it, do you see the pins actually flowing and moving? Take the Museum of Fine Arts Boston, home to the exhibit Tech Style, featuring technology-inspired fashion. There's a wonderful pair of 3D printed shoes. Not particularly wearable, but they're fantastic and amazingly interesting by Francis Patanti. There's also some incredibly interesting interactive garments called the Cute Circuit MFA dress. Lauren Whitley is co-curator. The attendance for fashion shows has been extraordinary. This has almost beat records already, this show. We do have to remember that fashion designers are artists. There is a huge aesthetic drive behind creating fashion. And it is one of the decorative arts, like ceramics, like furniture, and jewelry, and things like that. It is designed. The popularity of fashion exhibits has boomed in recent years, but clothing has been featured in museums for decades. In 1944, the Museum of Modern Art presented an exhibit called Are Clothes Modern, taking extra care to emphasize it was in no sense a fashion show. So when you look back at these, what do you think? I think, gosh, I'm old. <laughs> no. Fast forward to 2016, and we're still eager to differentiate a fashion show from fashion exhibit. Some fashion belongs in museums, you know, um, and some really doesn't. That's designer Isaac Mizrahi. His life and work is featured in yet another fashion-themed exhibit in New York, this one at the Jewish Museum. Because sometimes you do go into a museum where they have a show of clothing and it does feel like a store window, you know? So there's a difference. So there's a difference. I think, what place does fashion really have in a museum? And the, and the answer to that is, you know, good work meets a level. And so, you know, I don't necessarily think that this is saying anything about more shows that we need about fashion and museums. I'm not saying that. I just think that good work deserves to be looked at. So maybe fashion's place in museums isn't buttoned up just yet. But for the time being, this appears to be one debate with a shelf life. I think people just aren't afraid of fashion. I think people aren't afraid to express their opinion about fashion. Fashion is very subjective. And I think people have that sort of um, immediacy to fashion, which I think is, is really part of its power. And poetry as well, I think. Still to come... Good evening, hello! Laughs in the most unlikely places with Tig Notaro. I have cancer, how are you? And later... She's going to ask me about that sex change operation. I know that she is. Going, going, Wobegon. Garrison Keillor calls it a career. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. Sunday morning on CBS, and here again is Lee Cowan. Now you know why Tignataro's humor is a little difficult to describe. Luke Burbank introduces us to a woman who finds humor in just about anything, sometimes in life's least funny moments. I'm originally from Mississippi. It's um, the little things that seem to fascinate Tignataro. My favorite laugh noise is um, the sigh after the laugh, the 
Because it's like you're reminiscing about one second ago. Nataro has been reminiscing a lot lately. And that says Tig's autograph. With a memoir just out. I wish you a clean bill of health. Thank you, sir. You Absolutely. too. Nice meeting you. You too. Where do you think your boobs are? And an Amazon TV what? show like, based largely on her where life. Did the doctors put them when they took them off. Did they just throw them in a trash can? I hope so. Recycling was out of the question. Who first started calling you Tig? My brother came up with the name Tig when I was two. He couldn't say my real name, which is Matil. It's so strange because you seem like a Tig. I don't even know what a Tig is. Yeah, what would, it, what would be my other name if there had to be? Gary? Yeah. Not only is my real name weird, but my nickname is weird. And there's nothing normal. Her mother was far from the norm in the Houston suburb where Nataro grew up. She was a free spirit who reveled in having adventures, like the time she drove her 11-year-old daughter and her friend home on the hood of the car. There was this guy at a stop sign in like a muscle car. She filled up next to him and had her window down with two little girls on her hood. And she's like, hey, want to drag? And that's who raised me, you know? It's hard to be in society and be like, um, I'm sorry, what are the rules? Notaro followed her own rules through life, dropping out of high school and ending up in L.A., where she found her way into stand-up. That is my favorite visual in the entire world, is an infant taking a shower. Because it's like, even as adults, we have to be careful when we take a shower. We could slip. Then when you add an infant to that equation, it gets really tricky. Honing her craft over 20 years, she'd become a successful touring comic and TV actor. But that's when everything started falling apart. I could not ingest any food without it coming out of my body. And so I was losing half a pound a day. She'd contracted C. diff, a life-threatening bacterial infection. Notaro hovered in and out of consciousness in the hospital. Finally, she was released, which should have been cause to celebrate, except for the call she got from her stepfather. I am afraid I have some terrible news. Uh, your mother fell last night, and uh, it looks like she's not going to make it. The doctor had told us that there was zero chance of recovery, and we took her off life support. Notaro's mother was just 66. Then, two months later, as if C. diff and her mother's sudden death weren't enough. I was diagnosed with bilateral breast cancer. And I've made so many jokes over the years about how flat-chested I was. I started to think that maybe my boobs overheard me. And were just like, you know what? We are sick of this. Let's kill her. How long had you known that you had lumps in your breast before you actually went and got it checked out? I had different levels of awareness maybe a couple of years before, so I just ignored it. And it, I mean, I get waves of like, oh my God, that, like, just the fact that I let that go. The diagnosis was grim. Stage two invasive cancer. But this is where Tig Notaro did something most of us would think was crazy. In the midst of her grief and shock and fear, she decided to go back on stage at LA's famed club, Largo. Good evening, hello. I have cancer, how are you? Is everybody having a good time? Would it be accurate to say that you felt like this could possibly be your last comedy show? I absolutely thought it could be my last comedy show because I didn't trust where things were going. What followed was raw, uneven, brutally honest, and unbelievably funny. It's going to be okay. It might not be okay, but I'm just saying. 
You're gonna be okay. <laughs> I mean, it obviously changed my career in a way that I actually never imagined for myself. But despite her newfound success, Notaro says she struggled to adjust to her new body after her double mastectomy. For a long time, she wouldn't even look in the mirror. Please welcome Tig Notaro. Eventually, though, that changed too. Do not tempt me. I will do it. I will, I will. And she did, performing much of her HBO special, Topless. Why did you do that? You sound angry at me. Um, After one show, this guy was like, this is about being human beings. This is, this is our bodies. What is the big deal? Why is this taboo? I heard through the grapevine. They Before that epiphany, though, back when Tig was no being very private about you. her health problems, she'd you met someone her? on the set of a movie. You should cut your hair. Stop trying to woo me by being mean. Actress and writer Stephanie Allen. So she was hiding the fact that she was very, very ill. I really did well. think she had a cold because I remember going, oh, you should have some tea. But even in all of that, you were still making jokes. <laughs> Their paths crossed again a year later at the film's premiere, and they hit it off. So much so that Nataro soon realized she was falling in love. I reached a point where I was like, oh, I want to be with this person. And, and then she said no. <laughs> Did you actually say no? Yeah, I couldn't identify it because I hadn't been with women. And I, I really had an identity crisis because I felt like I needed to know this about myself before I could then say, okay, yes. They married last year and any day now are expecting twins being carried by a surrogate. Two boys. Do you guys have names picked out yet? Itsy and Bitsy. (laughs) People also ask what we're going to be called because there's two moms, you know? So my suggestion has been the pretty one and the funny one, but I want to be the pretty one, and I want Stephanie to be the funny one. Notaro says she never actually thought she'd be famous, never expected to have cancer, which she says is now in remission, and she certainly could have never guessed that her darkest days would lead her here, to this light-filled house full of love and promise, making Tig Notaro the luckiest, unlucky person you might ever meet. What I'm most proud of and most excited about is my personal life and the fact that I am alive and happy and thriving. I, that's what I want to talk about is, that's what excites me. Will you miss me? Miss me when I'm gone. Next, for the birds. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. With the right accessory, Big Red here could become quite a skywriter, right? Mo Rocca takes us to meet the man behind a fly-by-night air show like none other. Welcome aboard artist Duke Riley's floating workshop, a decommissioned World War II fighting ship. Look at the view, look at the view from there. (laughs) It's moored at the Brooklyn Navy Yard, once one of the most active boatyards in the country. Do you ever stand out here and imagine what it was like 50, 60 years ago? Oh yeah, I mean, every day. With a view like this, it's easy to understand why Riley's favorite canvas is right on the New York waterfront. 
is I, and I really like to draw pictures where I'm kind of combining what is on the waterfront now and, and sort of with what was there in the past and sort of superimposing those things together. And when Riley isn't focusing on the water, he's looking to the skies. His work depicts birds of all kinds, in mosaics, paintings, stained glass, even tattoos. Oh, wow. And that brings us to Riley's latest project, Fly by Night. It was inspired by this handbook. Restricted War Department Technical Manual for Homing Pigeons. It explains how homing pigeons, like tofu here, were trained to fly at night to avoid capture during World War II. Because the Nazis began using hawks to try to uh, intercept our pigeons that were delivering you know, messages behind enemy lines. In honor of those winged war heroes, and Riley says to encourage people to get their noses out of their smartphones and to look up, he's gathered a flock of about 2,000 pigeons flying them at twilight for most of this month, with tiny lights attached to their feet. But more about that later. So how did Duke Riley become such a bird brainiac? I was about eight years old and I, I found a, a pigeon that was, uh, that was uh, injured and I, I took it in. What are you doing? He nursed that bird back to health and set it free but it flew right back to his bedroom window. Suddenly I felt like I was like, you know, St. Francis or Grizzly Adams or something, you know, and I was like, oh, wow, this is, this, you know, pigeon knows who I am. At art school in Providence, Rhode Island, he even lived in a coop. What is it like living in a pigeon coop? It was actually like a beautiful uh, sound to wake up to every morning. You know, I mean, sometimes I would wake up and there were birds, you know, like literally like sleeping on, on top of me. But that cozy lovebird behavior didn't fly with everyone. It might have had some uh, effect on my, my uh, dating, life. dating life a little bit, you know. There was one girlfriend in particular that had some, some pretty uh, not-so-happy memories about it. And she said, this situation's for the birds. Yeah, yeah. According to Riley, fear of pigeons, what some birders call columbophobia. I can't lie. I'm yeah. remembering Hitchcock's movie right now. <laughs> is completely unjustified. We're in here surrounded yeah. by all these pigeons, but I'm not going to get sick? Absolutely not. You're much more likely to get sick from uh, your neighbor's kids than you are from your neighbor's pigeons. <laughs> True or false, pigeons are dirty? False. Pigeons spread disease? False. Colin Geralmack is the author of The Global Pigeon. Uh, I actually wrote a paper called How Pigeons Became Rats. He says the bird's bad rap goes back to the 1960s and a New York City parks commissioner. He held this press conference in which he said, we got to clean up this park. And that includes getting rid of the pigeons. I call them vandals or rats with wings. And after that, this phrase, rats with wings, just goes Broadway. Do you think that Fly By Night, Duke's project, could rebrand pigeons? And it will, at least for some people, rehabilitate their image. We saw what happened when some school kids came out to Riley's ship in the rain to meet his flock. Another battle won in the war for avian acceptance. But there was no fighting the weather. How are you leaning? I'm unfortunately leaning towards canceling at this day. I'm leaning towards, towards canceling it too. The day we spent shooting, well, it was Friday the 13th. I don't want them to get sick, and yeah, naturally you don't want them to get lost either, you know, if there was a, a storm came in or something like that. But on another much drier evening, the show did go on to a sold-out house, and the pigeons put on quite a show. <coughs> Swooping. Gliding. Spinning dive-bombing through the night sky, like a careening constellation. I don't need to have lights on birds to watch them. I can watch birds for hours and hours, and, and you know, and some of these birds, you know, fly for hours and hours. Ultimately, the goal is, is just to have people paying attention to them. These quiet fireworks may have changed some hearts and minds that night. No one here was likely thinking of these birds as rats with wings.
you know, there's a reason why pigeons are such a, you know, revered animal that appear symbolically in almost every religion in the world. Duke Riley remembers when pigeons were treated like eagles and hopes this show will put them back on their proper perch, high in the heavens above. Ahead. I wanted to officially be a part of that community that was hurting. Coming to terms. People across the country are still coming to terms with the mass shooting in Orlando, each in his or her own way. Steve Hartman has one young man's story. At the University of Montevallo in Alabama, sophomore music major Jesse Johnson was devastated. Like my heart sank inside of my chest. After the Orlando attack, he says he wanted to mourn, but couldn't. At least not with the sincerity he wanted to. In the back of my mind, I kept thinking, you know, I can't show the sorrow that I have inside without first explaining to the world why I have that much sorrow. So after hearing the news, Jesse sat down with his phone and did the most daring thing of his life. He typed out a message for his Facebook page, stared at it for the longest time, before finally mustering up the courage to click post. I just did it. The note read in part, I've thought about coming out for months, but was afraid of being shunned by those I care about over something that makes me who I am. I'm not going to change. I am gay, and I love you all. I wanted to officially be a part of that community that was hurting and that needed as many people to come together and stand with them. A lot of people came out after Orlando, but few took as big a risk as Jesse Johnson. Mm -hmm. Jesse's family lives in Jemison, Alabama, in the heart of the Bible Belt. Fly a flag here, and it better have just red, white, and blue. I worry for his safety because of that. I mean, this is Alabama. Jesse's mom, Nikki Johnson. I personally will never understand the parents that turn their back on their kids. I, I love him, and that will never change. Love you too. When some guy shoots up a gay bar, this kind of acceptance is not what he's aiming for. But Jesse says the majority of his family and friends have been remarkably supportive. And by doing so, they have helped turn his lifetime of fear into his future of belonging. We're gonna to stand together regardless of how afraid we are. And that's how you make a terrorist die in vain. Still to come. Can you give us a little sample? No, I won't give you any sample at all. This is a tasteful show Sunday morning. We don't want to get into that. Garrison Keeler, ready for his sign-off. And later, Tartan Time Trap. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. How'd your family try to powder milk? Well, if your family's tried them all, you know you satisfied them. For fans of the radio program, a Prairie Home Companion, news that Garrison Keeler's about to be homeward bound is an adjustment. Why is he leaving a show that has made him an institution? He talks about that decision with our Jane Pauley. I hear that old piano. That old piano has been an old friend to millions of radio listeners for a long time. But next week, Garrison Keeler will step away from the microphone. I'm going to get back to what I intended to do in the first place, which is to be a writer. It's Saturday and the band is playing. Honey, could we ask for more? You didn't know that radio was your destiny? Radio was never my destiny. It just happened. You get entangled in it. No, I'm a loner. You can tell that by the fact that I never make eye contact. Well, it's been a quiet week in Lake Wobegon, my hometown, out on the edge of the prairie. He calls a prairie home companion a 42-year detour. A detour he took in 1974. I went to Nashville to write about the Grand Ole Opry for the New Yorker. I really loved Nashville. It was so unbuttoned. 
All of these wonderful performers, Porter Wagner was there, Minnie Pearl, Roy Acuff, they were all children of the Depression. And they felt so lucky to have whatever they had. It was really a happy place. So I got seduced uh, by that into trying to start my own show. Well, look who's coming through that door. I think we met somewhere before. The Midwest that I talk about is the Midwest of my childhood, and that is receding in the rearview mirror at high speed. The urge to be number one is not a great urge. Number two can be nice. Number three can be even better. He grew up in Anoka, Minnesota, one of six, in a fundamentalist family. We had a big radio. It was a zenith. We resisted television because my people associated television with Hollywood, and then we were talking about adultery and all of that. But we loved radio. You would lie on the floor, and you could feel the bass come up through your, through your diaphragm. I have never believed any movie I've ever been to in the way that I believed radio when I was a kid. I have never suspended my disbelief in the same way as that strange amphibious creature breathing this phlegmy breath as Timmy was whimpering and clutching onto his grandpa with only a screen door between them and sure death after this word from Ipana Toothpaste. This last portion of our show brought to you as well by the Fearmonger Shop, serving all your phobia needs since 1954. Keeler may owe his gentle gift for story to his belief that he's on the autism spectrum. Undiagnosed as a child, he was allowed to be himself, a little apart, noticing, listening. If you weren't high-functioning autistic, you would have not had the blessings that your childhood gave you, that you are still mm -hmm. investing even now as a 73-year-old man. It takes you a long time to appreciate these strokes of astonishing good luck. I wanted to play football, and you had to, of course, go and get a physical. And I went down to Dr. Mork's clinic, and he put his stethoscope up to my chest, and he heard this little click which turned out to be a mitral valve prolapse. So, instead of playing football, I wrote about football. No better thing for a kid to write about actual things that are happening before your eyes. What a beautiful thing. I mean, I was very, very lucky. And lucky for us, a speech teacher taught a shy boy how to face his fear of people. If you take off your glasses, you can't see them and they won't look like people anymore. She said they'll, they'll look like flowers on a hillside. <laughs> and, uh, and she was right. And when you learn that you don't have to be afraid of people you can't see, you've taken a step towards broadcasting, you see. Hope you're enjoying the show. Reminding you that uh, coming up later on many of these stations, stay tuned for Iniquity on the Tundra. And now, Keeler is stepping away from broadcasting and eagerly anticipating a life of writing, a memoir and a screenplay, and traveling, or simply strolling down his tree-lined street in St. Paul. What is your favorite joke? My favorite joke? Mm -hmm. A man is walking by an insane asylum, and he hears the inmates shouting, 21, 21, and they sound so happy. And he walks up, and he looks through a hole in the fence, and they poke him in the eye with a sharp stick and yell, 22, 22. That's the greatest joke. I think I have a future in stand-up comedy, believe it or not. I really started to hit my stride about three weeks ago. I did four shows in four nights. It was a Lutheran town. Everybody was Lutheran. Even the atheists were Lutheran. It was, it was a Lutheran god they did not believe in. In the course of that two hours, there were about 40 minutes of helpless, convulsive 
laughter, during which people were embarrassed because there was stuff coming out of their noses. This is what I aspire to. Was this before or after the seizure? <laughs> no joke. Last month, Keeler suffered a nocturnal brain seizure. What happened to you? Luckily, it happens when you are asleep, so you're there on a mattress and you're thrashing. And this dear woman who married you for other reasons than this calls 911. <laughs> and the neurologist gives you an IV with this anticonvulsant, and you wake up and you joke around with the people in the ER. And 48 hours later, he'd written and performed two new shows. This coming Saturday's broadcast from the Hollywood Bowl will be his last. Chris Thiele is here from... But the show goes on. This was not the result of a beauty contest. This was my choice. Garrison Keillor's hand-picked successor is 35-year-old Chris Thiele. He'll do more of a music show because he has talent, you know, which I don't have. Oh, it lasted 40-something years and why it didn't end, I'll never know. But we'll miss that voice. I was in my office in the Acme Building, St. Paul. And all the others. Time now for the lives of the cowboys. You just take a piece of paper and you put it in the corner of your cheek and, and you become lefty. Hey, Lefty, where are you going? Where am I going? I'm going to the same place I've always been, just down the road and around the corner. See what's stand there. Will we see you again? Hope I see you again, sweetheart. <laughs> <laughs> That's the news from Lake Wobegon, Minnesota. Where all the women are strong, all the men are good-looking, and all the children are above average. Up next, I think we should pay people to go to school. Think about it. School days. One presidential candidate's signature issue gets an A-plus from our Jim Gaffigan. Bernie Sanders is proposing free college tuition for everyone. I support that idea. In fact, I'll go one step further. I think we should pay people to go to school. Think about it. Nobody wants to go to school. Maybe we want to learn, but we don't want to go to school and hear someone with coffee breath talk about algebra. That's just gross. I'm baffled that anyone goes to school when they aren't being paid, let alone that people are paying to go to school. <laughs> that makes as much sense to me as camping, jogging, or keeping up with the Kardashians. So I really want to get my ears pierced. What? You don't have your ears pierced? I'll tell you, every weekday morning after I hug my children and before they head out the door to go to school, I remind them that I never have to go to school again. It's an amazing feeling. Me bringing this up to them never seems to get the response I expect. Instead of being happy for me, my children seem resentful. Of course, I'm joking. I've never done that. I work at night, so I'm typically asleep when my kids go to school. And of course, I would never hug them. Some of you might be thinking, hey, Jim Gaffigan, I like your idea of getting paid to go to school. And you are very good looking. But what about me? I haven't gone to school in a long time. Is there a retroactive payment for past school I've attended? There sure is. All you have to do is buy a ticket to one of my upcoming fully dressed shows and mail the receipt to President Obama. He'll handle it from there. Thanks, President Obama. Have a nice Sunday, everyone. The link some people will go to for a Highland fling. The stars of a popular time-traveling TV series are the talk of television. Michelle Miller explains why. Scotland, a land of mist, magic, and myth. The perfect setting for a romantic, historical adventure series. People disappear all the time. With some time travel thrown in. Disappearances after all of explanations, usually. It's called Outlander, a surprise hit for Stars TV, now coming to the end of its second season. Katrina Balfe plays Claire, an English battlefield nurse who travels to Scotland with her husband Frank at the end of World War II. 
coming upon a mystical portal, she finds herself hurled 200 years into the past. 1743, to be exact, with Scottish clans plotting rebellion against British forces. Claire is, in a way, the audience. You know, she is the eyes that they see the rest of the story through. Captain Randall is expecting Mistress Beecham to be delivered to him tomorrow. Compelled for her own safety to marry a handsome young Scot, she finds herself falling in love. Welcome. Ah. Welcome to Lallybrock. Ah, Laird Fraser's bedroom. Ah, yes, the master bedroom, the, the blue room. And uh, yes, it's a very uh, special place. Yes, I, I would say so. When you meet Sam Hewen, yeah. who plays Jamie Fraser. And what can I do for you, Mr. Speecham? It's not hard to see why she falls you. hard. They don't always see eye to eye. He is from the past, he has his own moral code. She's from the future and, uh, you know, certainly thinks in a different way. So they're constantly banging heads when, when they come to these, these moments, but they, they have that love for each other and they, they discuss it and eventually work out that that takes the relationship forward and makes them ultimately closer. He didn't understand it all, but he listened. Not only do you have this, this incredible love story at the heart of it, but you know, there's an awful lot about what home means to people, you know, being displaced, how does that change your life? How do you find home within a new land? I mean, I think that's something that people today can really relate to. Another thing to relate to, the 18th century costumes designed by Terry Dressbach. The wedding dress. This metal embroidery here is the way they would have done it then. This is done with silver, actual silver plate and it's a, a technique of embroidery that hasn't been used in over a hundred years. But uh, now like under here, we shaved a million sheets of mica to, to catch light. It's incredible. I think it was about 69 pounds. I couldn't move too much in the dress, but uh, it, was, it was really beautiful, yeah. Did we mention Claire and her young Scottish husband have great sex? No, <laughs> Come on, you can ask about the sex. Okay, yeah. Yeah, is the sex really that good? <laughs> I always Pretend say, it's, well, of course, but I mean, it's like, it's the, it's it, what you do to the rest of us out there, you make it look so good. Oh, if only you knew all the crew that were standing in the room at the same time. The theme of Outlander is love, you know, this is a, a love story and it's, you know, the power of love, what love can accomplish. Diana Gobbledome, who lives not in Scotland, but in Scottsdale, Arizona, is writing her ninth book in the best-selling Outlander series. How many books have you sold now? 26 million, last count. I mean, so far as you can count, they're published in 42 countries in 38 languages. She published the first 25 years ago. I'm telling what it takes to be married for 50 years, because I've never seen anybody do that before. And do it well. You know, marriage could do you all some good. Jamie and Claire's love story will range the world over, but its roots are in Scotland, Jamie Fraser's home. It's been great to come back to Scotland and rediscover country that I grew up in and, and, and understand what it is I love about it. And I realized that a great deal of it is the landscape and the culture and the people. Overlooking that landscape is Dune Castle, just outside of Edinburgh. It sits in for Castle Leoch. 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 Yeah, that's it. You've got it now. <laughs> yeah, this would be, this is Colum's castle. Gary Lewis plays Colum McKenzie, powerful head of the McKenzie clan, shrewd, well-read, and hobbled by a rare disease. He studies history as much as he can, and he tries to learn the lessons Lessons which have taught him that without outside help, we cannot defeat a stronger power. And yet the small, rugged band of hardy Scots will fight bravely against overwhelming odds. This is my favorite spot. This is the, the armory. Filled with dirks and daggers, swords and muskets. Three, two, one, fire. <laughs> Woo! <laughs> it will just be like lying in that ditch again. 
But at the center of it all is the time-traveling Claire, a modern woman struggling with the painful knowledge that the Scottish Rebellion is doomed. We know what will happen if the Jacobites lose the war. But, but what if they win? One thing we do know. Allow me to present my wife. Jamie and Claire's love story is far from over. I promise, whatever happens, you'll never be alone again. You have my word, Claire Fraser. I'm Lee Cowan. Thanks for joining us this Sunday morning. We'll see you again next week.